tap into John chapter 20? Why does it seem that nearly every finalist in a major contest always wants world peace? How many of you want world peace? Raise your hand. How many of you realize that world peace is impossible this side of heaven? Thank you very much. It's impossible. It's impossible to have world peace. You know why? Because our nature is sin. (laughs) Sorry, I don't mean to throw that out there right off, off the bat. But as long as there are sinful people in this world... There will be wars and rumors of wars. Uh, People will want what they want. You know, in the book of James, it says, why are there fighting and quarrels among you? Because you want and you don't have. You kill and destroy because you can't get what you want. That's the reason there's war. So I I love those young ladies on the, the Miss America pageants. I just want world peace. It's a pipe dream. And I don't mean to discourage you for, for wanting it. That's a good thing to want, isn't it? But there's a, there's, there's a lot of different ways people strive for that world peace, isn't there? Everyone is seeking peace. Go to any part of the world and you will find people searching for peace. It may be world peace, and we have summits. There's been historical summits where the United States has met with other foreign countries to try to broker peace. I mean, Jimmy Carter was known for his peace talks between Israel and Palestine. That those were the crowning achievements of his presidency, were those peace talks. What has it, it gained him? What has it gained the Middle East? Some people are looking for personal peace as well, looking for peace for their families, peace for themselves personally. And we turn to so many different things in our struggle for peace, don't we? So many empty things in that desire for peace. But even beyond this, there is another kind of peace that everyone's seeking. We're looking for inner peace. How many of you have seen Panda, the Ninja Panda? What's that? Kung Fu Panda 3. What's the, what's the, uh, the uh, turtle's name? Uguay? Uguay? He's, there's, there's a scene where Uguay is talking to... Uh, Jack Black, I, I don't know what his character, Poe, thank you very much. I don't pay attention to these names, I just, and, and he's floating in the air and he's going, inner peace, inner peace, inner peace, and of course Poe tries to do that and fails miserably. All he wants to do is eat. We're looking for inner peace. We want peace within ourselves. Inner conflict and turmoil can, come, can become a torture to our souls. Books are sold by the millions each year promising inner peace. These books are promising a way to find inner peace where there is inner turmoil. And in our churches, about 10 years ago, this new phenomena started. It was called Financial Peace University. Seminars, where we want financial peace as well. Well, despite a general desire for peace, it seems that we are not very good at it, aren't we? A former president of the Norwegian Academy of Sciences and historians from England, Egypt, and Germany, and India have come up with some startling information, some some statistics about our strive and our search for peace. They dug through records all the way back to 3600 BC, and the world has known only 292 years of peace since 3600 BC. 
During this time, there have been 14,351 wars of various kinds and sizes. In those 14,351 wars, three and a half billion people have died. And the amount of property, the value of the property destroyed, would pay for a gold belt wrapped around the world that was 97 miles wide and 33 feet thick. That's a lot of money that has been expended, a lot of resources that have been lost in an effort to find peace. Since 650 B.C., there have also been 1,656 arms races. That means a, a race to build up our, our, our nuclear warheads and our bombs and all of our ordnance. Only 16 of which have not ended in war. And the remainder end in economic collapse of the countries involved. It's startling to me. If I could sum up this sermon in a phrase, I think it would be a fitting bumper sticker, and you've seen it in different contexts. The word N-O and the word K-N-O-W. No, Jesus, there's no peace. Unless you K-N-O-W, Jesus, that's where you can know peace. That's how we know peace. What I want to do this morning is look with you at Jesus' first appearance to all of his frightened disciples, and it happened to be the evening of Resurrection Sunday. So if you know your Bible, if you know the story, Jesus rose early in the morning. Mary Magdalene was the first one to greet him. She thought he was a gardener. But then Mary ran back to the disciples, and what did the disciples do? Well, Peter, Peter and John, they ran to the tomb. And of course, they found an empty tomb. The reality is, as I was thinking as we were worshiping this morning, as I was listening to all of us sing, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we are utter fools to be standing here singing our hearts out. We are. And I think about the thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people throughout the centuries who have martyred themselves for the cause of Christ, and they are utter fools as well. They died for nothing if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So I want to look at Jesus' first appearance that we find in this verse of John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. And I want us to ponder, how did Jesus act with his disciples? And, and what did the risen Jesus say to his disciples? And then how does it contribute to our peace and even much more than that? So let's look at our text this morning. I'll be reading uh, several verses and making some comments. The first part of John 20, verse 19, let's see how Jesus acted. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. So again, just a reminder, where are we time-wise? Jesus rose Sunday morning. Uh, he visited some disciples. He made appearances. And, and, you know, Jesus just kind of appeared and reappeared. This is one of those occasions. It's Sunday evening. The disciples are locked into a, an upper room, so to speak. Perhaps the same upper room in which they celebrated Passover Thursday night. Maundy Thursday, what we call Maundy Thursday. They went back to that location because they knew it was a familiar territory. territory because the foundation of their, the last three years of their life had fallen apart. The bottom had dropped out because their master died. 
So they went back to this upper room. I want you to notice three things that Jesus does that tell us what we can know about how the risen Christ deals with us today. First thing I want you to note, the doors were locked. Why is, what does the text say is the reason for the locked door? The disciples were afraid. Jesus did not have to knock. He did not even have to open the door. He simply was there. And he wasn't a ghost. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, He showed them his hands and his side. In another place, he said, Touch, touch me. Touch my hands. Touch my side. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he has a physical body, but not exactly like ours. I, I think we get a glimpse, perhaps, into our resurrection bodies, our resurrection bodies, our new bodies, when all of history is gone, when the old earth is gone, when the new heavens and the new earth are brought into being, we get a glimpse that I am not meant to be this spirit floating around in the sky. I'm meant for a physical body, a resurrection body. And that's the hope of all of us who have loved ones who died. That's why death doesn't have sting anymore. Because death is not the final chapter. It may be the final chapter for this body, and I can't wait till it goes. I wake up in the morning sometimes, and it's, I'm, I'm, as I'm getting older, I wake up in the morning with aches and pains. How many of you can bear witness to that? I, I won't have to deal with that anymore because I have a new body. And Jesus gives us a glimpse as to what this new body will perhaps be. I, I don't know. Scripture is very silent on what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. But I, 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 if I had a superpower, if I were a superhero, I'd want to be a teleporter. And I think I'm going to be one in the new heavens and the new earth. Because Jesus seemed to appear and reappear at will. He was in the room and then he was gone. My greatest wish is going to be realized. I'll be a teleporter in, new, in the new heavens and the new earth. What does, this mean for us to, what does this mean for us today? What does this mean for our life? If Jesus can reappear and disappear in, in locked, behind locked doors, perhaps it gives us a glimpse to the fact that there's no one else, there's nowhere else that we can go. He can go where no one else can go. He can touch the most inner parts of our beings where a counselor cannot reach. He can go where no doctor can go. He can go where, where no lover can go. He can satisfy where no human being can satisfy us. He can reach you and reach into you anywhere, anytime. So who's, who's, who, who has the problem with this? We do. Jesus is there for us. He's ready to reach out to us. I think we're the ones that go like this. We're the ones that keep him at arm's length. And I think part of the reason we keep him at arm's length is that once we drop the arms, we realize we're not in control anymore. We realize that we're not the masters of our own fate. And in in fact, we never really were. That's an illusion. The first point on your map is there is no place where you are or ever will be where Jesus cannot have access. There's no place. 
Even David in the Psalms recognized it. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths of the sea, you are there. We can't get away from him. We can't hide from him. And, and that's both joyful and frightening, isn't it? Because we can hide from each other. We can walk in on any given Sunday and make anybody believe that we have it all together. But we cannot hide from Jesus. Can we? We can't. Jesus' resurrection from the dead fits him to do what no one else can do. There is no one else like him in the universe. He's alive. And he's the only God-man. What he is capable of, you cannot imagine. And it is a healing wonder to contemplate all the complex layers of our life, isn't it? We're complex people. But Jesus can see right through that. And he's available to us. The second thing, notice, they were afraid. Their leader had just been crucified as threat to Caesar. Their fear is really understandable. And into that fear, Jesus comes. He steps right into the middle of that fear. I suppose I want to draw your attention to this because this is the way that I feel the need for the risen Jesus more than anything, personally. I don't have it all together. I I, I struggle with fear. I do. I struggle with fear that I'm not going to be the husband and the father that I need to be for my wife and children for my growing family as my kids get married. I I struggle that I'm not going to be the man that they need me to be. I struggle that I'm not going to be, I fear that I'm not going to be the pastor you need me to be. That I'm not going to equip you well. That the church isn't going to prosper. These are fears that I I struggle with on a daily basis. I struggle with, with once my, well, and two of my three kids are out from underneath my influence now. But sometimes I wonder at what point Will they shipwreck their faith? Will they shipwreck their faith? Have I done enough? Do you, do you guys struggle with this? Am I the only one? Dads, am I the only one struggling with these things? The fear that I've not done enough? The fear that I've not been a good enough example? Fear that I might drift into worldliness? Fear that I won't have faith to die well. I went home to be with my dad Wednesday and Thursday. My dad is dying of COPD. He's smoked since he was 12. And he's dying. He's slowly losing his ability to breathe. It's painful to watch him labor over breath. And, and my dad is not dying well. He believes in Jesus, but he's not dying well. He's, he's wrestling and fighting and struggling and he's not listening to the doctors and he's not listening to my mother. He's not dying well. And I want to tell him, I want to grab him by the shirt and say, Dad, you know the answer. You know the truth. We have Resurrection Sunday. We are Easter people. You can have faith to die well. I, I, I am not afraid to die. Uh, there, there are some ways I don't want to die. I don't want to drown, but I understand, and, and how, how people understand this to be true, I don't know, but some people suggest that drowning is actually very peaceful. I don't see it. And again, how do they know? 
I don't want to die in an airplane. I am not afraid of flying. I am afraid of hitting the ground at excessive rates of speed. Some of, there's some of the processes of dying. I don't want to, I don't want to die. My, my dad is dying of lung disease. And that's a painful way to die. It is. But what, what Jesus is saying in this action is, I come to my own when they're afraid. I don't wait for them to get their act together. I don't wait for them to have enough faith to overcome their fears. I come to help them have enough faith to overcome their fears. The risen living Jesus is still doing this. And the second point in your map is he comes when we cry out to him in our fear. He helps us. The problem is we're too stubborn to cry out. And when we do cry out, it's often the last resort. What I want to be true in my life, that it's becoming more and more of the first resort when I hit the fear. That immediately I cry out, Lord, help me. I've called him a thousand times and he's come near with the promise. And here's the promise. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will help you. See, that's why it's important to to soak in the scriptures so we can draw upon the the, the wealth of truth that can sustain us through difficult times. He will do this for you if you receive him into your life for who he really is. And that's part of the problem. We want Jesus on our terms. We don't want to receive him for who he really is. We want to control him and insulate us from him. We have to receive him for who he is. Thirdly, Jesus comes to them and stands in their midst. Why is that important? I I think the point is, is that he came right into the middle of their meeting. He didn't come to the edge. He didn't call to them from outside. He is not a distant deity. He is not removed from our struggles. He's not removed from our circumstances. That third point in your map says it. Jesus doesn't enter into our circumstances from a distance. God is not watching from a distance. How do we know that? Right here. He embraced our pain. He absorbed our pain. He absorbed our punishment. That's what he wants for you today, and that's what I want for you today. I want you to experience the living Jesus, to know him, to have him draw near into your life where no one else can go. To have him help you in your fear the way no one else can help you. And I know fear grips us all. You can't say that it doesn't. You can try, but you can't say that it doesn't grip you. That's what, I, that's what I'm praying this morning. It's what I've been praying since I woke up this morning. So that's the way he acts as the risen living Christ. Now what does he say? What does he say to these disciples who are fearful? What does he say to these disciples that, that some of them had betrayed him? Peter had denied him. Thomas wasn't even there. He had so much doubt. He needed a second appearance. 
to be convinced. I think there's three things that we see in Jesus' discussion with them. And they, they really are three gifts to us, three resurrection gifts to us. There's the gift of peace. That's, it's real peace. Not, not made up peace. Not manufactured peace. Not brokered peace in a big meeting. But it's real internal peace. There's the gift of power and there's the gift of purpose. And there is an order, there is an order in which they need to come. Because I think all, all too often we want the power and the purpose before we get the peace. And you'll see that more in a second. What is the opposite of peace? Conflict, isn't it? The opposite of power is weakness. The opposite of purpose is aimlessness. See, the resurrection counters all of those things. Many, many lives are ruined by conflict, weakness, and aimlessness. Jesus did not come into the world and die and rise again to further ruin your life. To be quite honest with you, if left alone, I will do a nice job of ruining my life. If left to my own devices, I will mess things up royally. Jesus didn't come to further ruin it. He came to save it. That was the announcement at his birth. You'll, you'll, you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I think what we'll see is that he saves us from ruining our lives by becoming himself our peace and our power and our purpose. And really, when I think about it, I am my worst enemy. Not my circumstances, not the part of the, the, the town that I was raised in, not the side of the tracks that I lived on, not the circumstances of my life or the people that raised me. I am my biggest enemy. I'm praying that God will do this for you. Make Jesus your peace and your power and your purpose. So what did he say? Let's look at our text again. Two times he says, peace be with you. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. And again, I want to remind you that the order here is really important. The peace that Jesus gives is before and underneath any of our empowered actions, or any of our purposeful deeds. You get that? Jesus' peace must be the foundation of any of our attempts at power and purpose. The Apostle Paul, uh, who wrote 13 of, the, of 21 of the New Testament letters, explains it like this. He, Jesus, himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See, the peace that Jesus offers the disciples is peace that he accomplished when he died for them on the cross. And it's peace, peace that he accomplished for you and I at his death. That's why in verse 20 he says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands in his side. I am the one who died, he said. I am the one you abandoned. I am the one who has pierced, was pierced for your transgressions. 
And the reason I can offer you peace is because my, of my blood, I have covered all your sins. See, the cross is not enough. I'm going to say that again. Because without the resurrection, the cross is insufficient. Without the resurrection, those were empty attempts to purchase us peace. Because if Jesus had stayed in the grave, his attempts at purchasing us peace would have been lost. Because death really would have won. But he rose. That's why, that's why Paul says, if Jesus did not raise, rise from the dead, my preaching to you is fruitless. It's pointless. Your faith is pointless, he says. See, if you trust me, he says, your transgressions won't be held against you. The wrath of God is turned away. That's what Paul meant when he said Christ reconciled us both to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. All the hostility between God and us was absorbed on the cross. You know, some people struggle with an angry God. They really do. We live in a culture where we just want a God of love. God is a God of love. That's true. But if, if you don't understand that God was offended by sin, that sin has messed with his creation. And see, I mentioned it on Good Friday. Wrath is love offended. That's what wrath is. It's love offended. And we offended his love. We offended his freedom. We offended his creation. We offended him. All the hostility between God and us was absorbed in the cross. And Jesus says, here, look at my side and my hands. Here's proof. Here's the proof that I absorbed it for you. I made peace with these and this and the stripes on my back and the crown on my head. I made peace when I cried to my father, why have you forsaken me? I made peace when I said it is finished. Do you ever think about the phrase, it is finished? It's an economic term. When I go to the store, I have a debt against me. Now, we live in a culture of credit cards and money. I usually pay things off with a credit card or money, but you know what? You still owe somebody if you use your credit card, unless it's a debit card. But if it's a credit card, the credit card owns you until you pay it off, and they will hound you until you pay it off, won't they? But see, at some point when you pay it off, they stamp paid in full, don't they? And that's what the Greek word, it is finished, means. Jesus took our debt. He took the, the bill of sales that we owed our Father that we couldn't pay, and he stamped, it is finished, paid in full on it. We have no debt. We owe God nothing. For our sin. Jesus paid it all. See, peace between you and God was established in the wounds of Jesus, in the death of Christ. Very quickly, five relationships where the crucified and risen Christ brings peace into your life. 
First, he brings peace between us and him. That's the first and most obvious meaning. He's standing there among his disciples, offering them himself as a friend and helper, not a judge. And that's what he stands in our life, doesn't he? He's a friend and helper. That's how conflicts affect, affect, affects us first and foremost. We've offended him. Secondly, peace between us and God. And that's why God sent him, isn't it? God so loved the world that he gave, finish it, his only begotten son. That's why God sent Jesus into the world, so we could have peace between he and us. Thirdly, peace between us and others who are in Christ. To be reconciled to God is to be reconciled to all who are reconciled to God. See, in fact, we are given a ministry of reconciliation. There's no other place in the scriptures that says we have a, we've been given a ministry. We're not, Byron, Susie, sorry, you guys are great worship leaders, but you're not given, none of you. Alex, you're not given a ministry of worship leading. You're not. There's only one place in the scriptures that says we're actually given a ministry. And it's the ministry of reconciliation. It's the ministry of restoring people to God first and then to one another. That's our job. We are to be peacemakers. We're to be peacemakers in our relationship with God and with others. We're to go out and preach peace to the world because we are ministers of reconciliation. How are you doing in that ministry? How are you doing in helping people be reconciled to God and to each other? I have to tell you, in all my years serving as a pastor, the church really stinks at reconciliation. We, we, we have a hard time reconciling one another. If we have a hard time reconciling one another, how are we going to go out and reconcile other people to God and each other? How will they know we are Christians? Our love. Love is reflected in how we deal with conflict with one another. We need, to be, we need to be good at that. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, we get a clue as to another area of peace. It says, The blood of Christ will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I think that's peace between us and our own souls. I wake up sometimes with a guilty conscience. How many of you do? How many of you end up at work sometimes with a guilty conscience because you knew you cut that person off? <laughs> how, many of you, how many of you wake up with a guilty conscience because you said something that you, you, couldn't, you couldn't take back in once you said it? Or you hit that send button on your Facebook post and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that. We, we have guilty consciences, don't we? How much? How, how many of you want to, to live your life with a, with a guilt-free conscience? I do. And see, that's what the peace of Christ offers us, a guilt-free conscience. It purifies our consciences. That was nothing, the, the, the blood of bulls and goats could never purify the consciences of the worshipers. But Jesus' blood can. His blood can purify and cleanse our consciences. Are there any of you here this morning that are having a hard time forgiving yourself? 
I talked to someone the other day who said, I just really struggle with forgiving myself. I do too. I struggle with forgiving myself. And, and, and I looked at that person and I said, you know, when you struggle with forgiving yourself, and I have to remind myself of this as well, I am saying that my standard of justice is greater than God's. I'm actually elevating myself above God when I can't forgive myself. So we have to embrace this peace that God has given us in Jesus Christ and let it go. No, I'm not going to stand and sing. But we do. We have to let it go. We've got to embrace the forgiveness that we have. And not only the forgiveness, the clean conscience. That's the peace that we have. There's one last peace that we have. Peace with the world. Yes, when Jesus died, he did what needed to be done so that someday in God's time, all evil will be cast into outer darkness and the entire new creation will be full of peace and righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 9, we have an announcement, a Christmas announcement, don't we? Of this child that's going to be born. In Isaiah 9, 7, it says, of the increase of his government and of their peace and of peace, there will be what? No end. There'll be no end to the peace that he provides us with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now, how do we receive this? How do we receive this peace? Everybody doesn't have it. It's a gift of God. We receive it or we walk away from it. Better, or better yet, we receive him or we walk away from him. He is our peace. If you have the risen living Christ as your Savior and Lord and treasure and friend, you have the peace that he gives, the peace that he is to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus offers you that this morning. I offer that on his behalf this morning. It's free. I pray that you receive it. I pray that you don't leave here this morning without saying, without dropping that arm, without keeping him from arm's length. I pray that you receive him by saying, I can't do life anymore this way, Lord. And surrender. Because that's what it's going to take. It's going to take surrender. Absolute surrender. And I got to tell you, I'm not good at that but I have to struggle with it every day. I have to struggle to surrender to him every single day because I try to take that control back. I try to fix my problems again. Well, I've spent most of our time on looking at the gift of peace because I think it really is foundational. If we don't have peace with God we will take all his other gifts and use them to try to make peace and it will never work. Peace is first and it's free. Everything else is an effect of that peace that we have with God. It's the fruit. So let me just point in closing to the power and the purpose Jesus gives us. And I think both are mentioned for us in verses 21 through 22. So three times we see in this passage, Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's our purpose. 
And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. There's the power. Jesus, historically, is going to pour out his Spirit about 70 days from now, historically. The disciples are going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to be in an upper room. The Holy Spirit's going to come down as we read in Acts chapter 2, and he's going to fill them with the ability to actually do what he's commissioned them to do. And what has he commissioned them to do? This is Jesus' first commission. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. That's his first commission. It's not what we call the Great Commission. I actually think it's the Greater Commission. Because we need to go as the Father has sent us. Now what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to make disciples. As we hear at the end of Matthew. I'm sorry, I said 70 days later. It's seven weeks later after his resurrection we get... The promise of the Holy Spirit. See, the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives is that he makes us able to do what what we are simply not able to do on our own. He gives us power. John 20, 22, Jesus performs a kind of acted out parable when he breathed on them. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit then, but he was acting out to them what was going to happen. He was going to be the vehicle, the means by which the Holy Spirit came to them and he wasn't going to leave them alone. He wasn't going to leave them powerless and he wasn't going to leave them purposeless. He didn't say, receive him at this very moment. He said, in effect, realize that my breath, my life, my word will be in the Holy Spirit. And I think we've seen this before in John 14. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Well, how does he do that? He, come to, he comes to us in the power of his Holy Spirit, in the person of the Holy Spirit. The person, this power, is our only hope for accomplishing the purpose he has for us. We can't fulfill this resurrection commission without this power. We can't fulfill our purpose. And see, there's a danger in Easter sometimes, isn't there? Here's the danger in Easter, that we get so enamored at what Jesus has done for us, we so personalize it and internalize it, we forget that he he provided us peace and power to do something. And that was to be his witnesses. Why did God move? Think about this for a minute. This is a really quick lesson in Old Testament history. Why did God choose the Jews? To be a kingdom of priests. Not for themselves, but for the surrounding world. It's why when you read the, 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 the minor prophets, God judges the surrounding nations. And why was he judging the surrounding nations? Because really, it was kicking sand into the Jews' faces because they failed to be a kingdom of priests to the surrounding nations. It was like he was rubbing salt into their wounds saying, you didn't do what I asked you to do. And then what do we see in Peter. Peter says, you, talking to the church, are a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? That you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. And and we want to be exclusive. We want to say, I'm part of the club. No, we can't say that. Because we're not part of an exclusive club to hoard what Jesus has done for us on the cross and through resurrection. We are part of a group of people that are sent and need to live sent. But we can't live sent without the power of the resurrection. Because it's the peace that we have in Jesus Christ first. 
that enables us to experience the power, that enables us to do what he's called us to do. And that's to go and make disciples, to go and communicate the truth of the gospel. I can't do that alone, brothers and sisters. We can't do that alone. We need the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We are called to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And what does an ambassador do? An ambassador lives the principles of his sending country in a foreign land. That's what we're called to do. We are not citizens of this kingdom, are we? According to the Bible. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are to live his ethics in a foreign land. That's really difficult right now in our political arena, isn't it? What is a Christian to do? What's a Christian to do if either Hillary or Trump gets a nomination? What's a Christian to do? My citizenship is not of this kingdom. What, what, what are we to do when we see stuff like it happening in, in Belgium, in Brussels? What, what do we do? We're not citizens of this kingdom. We need to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep, but we need to hold out hope. Because the kingdoms of this world are crumbling. But the kingdom that we are members of is, will never crumble. Never crumble. We are ambassadors of another kingdom. So stop getting, stop getting tripped up by the kingdom of this world. It cannot satisfy. It will not satisfy. If you're looking for peace in this world, you're not going to find it. You're going to find it in Jesus Christ. A risen, living Jesus Christ. What's Jesus calling us to do? The same thing the Heavenly Father sent him to do. To extend his peace, to extend his light, to extend his truth, to extend his life in this world And he says, I'm going to my Father, but I give you my Spirit. I am the power in you. So go and glorify me in the world. That's our great purpose. In the peace of God, by the power of God, to do the will of God, for the glory of God and for the good of others. And you know, I'm a little puzzled by this last verse. Verse 23 says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, any it is withheld. What, what does Jesus mean with this last verse in this text? I think this is what he means. When you tell people about what he's done, when you speak his word, when you talk about his work, when you do so in the power of the Spirit, he's the one that's speaking through us, bringing reconciliation. I can't bring reconciliation to anybody. I have a hard enough time with my own relationships. But it's him who's speaking through us. It's him who's empowering us to do what he needs to do. And I think he's giving his disciples an example of what reconciliation means in that simple image of forgiving people or not forgiving people. 
That's what reconciliation looks like. Simply speaking, if you're listening to this message, when you, what you make of this message from this human being will decide whether you are forgiven or not. That's the reality when a preacher preaches the gospel. When you make a decision to hear the gospel or turn from the gospel, you're making a decision on whether or not you want forgiveness or not. That's the bottom line. How many do you want forgiveness? Do you want reconciliation? Do you want that eternal peace that only Jesus can satisfy? I do. I want it more and more and more every day. But you're, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle for the rest of your life if you're seeking for peace in any other way, in any other means. So turn to Jesus today. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up at this point. Actually, Susan, Susie and Byron to come up, get themselves ready. And while they're getting themselves ready, I'm, I'm just going to ask a very simple thing. I just want everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. The gospel is true. And today, as we celebrate his resurrection, it's proof that the gospel is true. But we have to receive that gospel. We have to receive that gospel by faith. And as, as every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if, if you want that kind of peace that only Jesus provides, just, just slip up your hand. Halfway doesn't matter. You can slip it up all the way. No one's watching. I'm not even watching. My head's bowed and my eye is closed as well. Jesus is watching. If you want the peace that only Jesus on this resurrected Jesus can provide, just slip your hand up. And then what I want you to do is very simple. I want you to either bring that hand forward to the person that's sitting in front of you or to either side of you or to behind you. And the person you touch, I want that person to pray with you. Because really, receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior is, is as simple as saying, Lord, I surrender. I surrender my desire for peace in any other way other than your providing. I surrender my desire for peace in any worldly system. I surrender my desire for peace in any worldly way. And I want your peace. And so if you've, lift your hand, if you've lifted your hand this morning, just reach out and touch somebody to your left or to your right or in front of you or behind you and just lean over and them say, hey, can we pray together?